Have you ever noticed how big a part in our life comparison plays? Comparing in good ways, like if you're doing a flat pack furniture, stopping at some point to look at what you've built and the picture of what you're supposed to be building and seeing what needs to be adjusting, seeing what needs to be put right or just plowing on because you're doing a great job. Comparison like that can be a really good thing. Or comparison that's a little bit darker, a little bit more destructive. When we compare ourselves to the best version of others and we feel low, we feel disappointed, we feel crushed. In so many ways, in so many areas of our lives, comparison is a really big, big deal. And it can do one of two things. It can point us in the right direction and be a positive thing or it can crush us and lead us nowhere. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 33, a psalm that helps us to compare God, the great God of this universe, and us. Simple, sad, lowly human beings. And there's a chance as we make that comparison that we would be crushed, that we would be destroyed that we would just put our heads in our hands and weep. I hope this morning as we compare the Almighty with all of mankind, actually we'll be encouraged and we'll be pointed in the right direction. See, this is how Psalm 33 starts. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a lyre, make music to him. With a ten-stringed harp, sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. So far, it doesn't seem or sound like a a psalm of comparison. It, It seems like a really straightforward psalm of instruction, of command, praise, worship, adore. It seems simple. It seems like the exact sort of thing you'd expect to encounter when you open the Bible, especially when you um, open it up to the Psalms. And for lots of our lives, simply being told what to do is enough. But if you're anything like me, if you're anything like my children, the what is one thing, but the why, the why is what's really important. You can follow a command and instruction once, twice, three times without really knowing why you do it. But if it's going to become a life's habit, if it's going to become something which flows out of you, not just something that you obey, then you really do need to understand the why. And what comes in the rest of Psalm 33 is the why. Why is it that people like you and me should worship God. And we're going to get to that answer by comparing God with us. Naturally, the psalmist begins by looking at God and looking at God in three different ways. First of all, looking at his character, then looking at the things that he has done, and then finally looking at the place, the position, the authority that he has in all things. And when we compare mankind, humanity, you and I with God in all of these areas, 
Well, then we're left with some pretty serious questions and a little bit of work to do of where to see how that means we are people who joyfully, joyfully praise and rejoice in God. So let's start where the psalmist starts then in this comparison, in introducing us to God, in answering that question why we should worship, why we should adore, why we should praise. And he goes probably to the thing that is most important, the thing which if the rest of the psalm wasn't there would still be reason enough to look to God and be happy. His character, who he is in and of himself, like we might understand it, his personality traits. The word of the Lord is right and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. We're introduced to a God who is true. We're introduced to a God who is trustworthy. We are introduced to a God who is just and who loves. Now, I love making observations, vast sweeping observations about humanity in general. And one of the things that we do is follow fashions, follow fads. Something is popular one day and then it's discarded the next. And that's not simply in terms of clothes, but in things which we value, things which we esteem in our society. But there are some qualities which outlast fashions and fads, aren't there? There are some characteristics and attributes that no matter how society has changed, they've remained the same. Those are the sorts of qualities we see in God. It's never been unfashionable to be loving. It's never been undesirable to be just. It's never been and it never will be a bad thing to speak truth. It's not surprising really, is it, that the things which we unchangingly desire in the people we interact with are the things that are true about the eternal and unchanging God. You know, when you write an obituary for someone, it's to go in the newspaper. Generally speaking, it's, it's three things, the same three things that are written in this psalm that people will pick up on. A person's character, their temperament, the things that they've done and the positions that they've held. And in an obituary, you might read of someone that they were a tender person. They showed compassion in their lives. They were good company. We can read about how people display certain traits. But when we meet God and his character, the thing that we're confronted with is that he doesn't just display these things. He defines them. We might be able to look back over someone's life and say they were a loving person. But it is only the God of the universe that we can say is love. That's the first thing, the first point of the first reason, the first thing we need to get our heads around when we're considering the greatness of God is that in and of himself, his character, he is amazing. But it goes on. That's not enough almost to really get our heads around how great God 
is this same God who we've met, who is all these things in and of himself has put that goodness into action. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. Just stop and take stock of that. Think that that great God who we've been introduced to already, who in and of himself is perfect he created more than that he created in such a way and with such things that our simple minds never really fully comprehend or get get their wits around them he spoke and there was he breathed and existence he gathered and deposited the seas and the oceans. This, the seas and the oceans like water in a bottle. The seas and the oceans, a fraction of which can bring us to utter ruin, is, is nothing to this God. What kind of a God is this? You know, I think that I'm a nerd. I studied physics for four years in university and I still love watching science programmes. Those kind of nature documentaries, things like that that you'll find on the BBC. Uh, you know, Blue Planet, whatever it's called that Brian Cox is on at the moment. I love how those shows take us to nature, the natural world, and they invite us to be in awe of it. This psalm is doing a similar thing, isn't it? It's presenting us with the wonder of everything that has been made and is pointing us and pointing our awe in the right direction pointing us towards the one who achieved it, the one who conceived of it in the first place. It's, it's kind of saying if creation is so wonderful, then how much more the creator? God is great because of who he is. God is great because of what he's done. And I think verse eight is so appropriate. Stop planet Earth and be astounded. But as if that is not enough, there is one final stop on the tour of God's greatness. And it's not his character anymore. It's not what he's created, but it's the authority, the position, the status that he has. Verse 10, the Lord frustrates the counsels of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own possession. For the Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on the inhabitants of all the earth from his dwelling place. And he forms the hearts of them all and he considers all of their work. Oh, it's good. It is good if God is your God because he sits in heaven. He is enthroned on high, looking down on the affairs of man. From his seat of authority and power and status, he's the one who rules over the whole earth. 
think back to that idea of the ideal obituary, where we learn about someone's character, where we learn about um, someone's achievements. What really is the, the cherry on the cake? What really is the icing on the cake, the, the cherry on the sundae? Um, isn't a massive part of, of how we understand and perceive someone's importance in their life by the position that they've held? One of my favourite examples is John Stott. If you don't know John Stott, he's worth looking into. He's worth reading up on and reading himself because he was a very popular and influential figure in 20th century Christianity. In his obituary, there were um, lots of comments about his character, his kindness, his gentleness, his tenderness and so on. There were lots of comments about the things that he'd written. He contributed an awful lot of books and the, the projects that he'd spearheaded. But there's, there's one line in his obituary that really catches my eye. It says that for nearly 50 years, John Stott had the privilege of serving as chaplain to the Queen. Now, I'm not here to discuss whether the Queen is a good thing, whether we like the monarchy or not. But just that line, I think, makes his, his obituary far grander. And it makes it a far grander of a description of the man who was. When you understand someone's position, we understand how important and influential someone truly was. And that position cannot get any higher than the position held by God. It's comical almost here, and it, it's, uh, it's a, a device utilised elsewhere in Scripture to describe God as high and up and stooping down, bending over, condescending just to catch a glimpse. It's supposed to show us how high and above he is. This larger than life, this lofty image of him. The whole point is to help us to see that God is in charge, that God is over and above everyone. And so we get to this point in the psalm and we've been told to praise God. We've probably responded with the question of why would we do that? And we've been told threefold because of who he is, because of what he has done, and because of where he sits. Now, I started off by saying that this psalm is a psalm of comparison. And so far, we've had precious little of that. All we've had is God held up to us, laid out on display for us to see his greatness and his glory in so many different ways. But that's where things turn in verse 16. The focus for a moment now shifts from being on God to being on humanity. As if to say, if you still haven't quite understood how remarkable this God is, just look around at all the things that the people, the, the practices that, that you value in your life. Verse 16. King is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. The point that's being made here as we run through this list of things that in the ancient world were trusted in, were, were looked to for sources of, of hope and safety and security. The point that's trying to be made is that when we look anywhere in, in the human sphere, when we look anywhere for safety, 
for hope, for protection, all those things ultimately let us down. They fail. They all fail. As God has been exalted, now we're given the opportunity to examine our humanity and see precisely how much we're found wanting. See, it doesn't get higher than a king, does it? Yet even a ruler of the strongest army isn't safe. We don't find anybody stronger in our society than a mighty warrior. And yet their power, it says, will flounder. There's nothing more important in battle, at least in the time that this was written, than some really good horses. And yet again, that we see that they are simply a vain hope. They're not the place to put your trust. We could rewrite it like this, that all our human heroes, all our human hopes are vanishingly small when we at last compare them to the greatness of God. Today, we'd put so many different things in that list. We wouldn't put kings and warriors and horses, but we might put relationships. We might put health and wealth. We might put rest and relaxation and recreation as things that make us feel comfortable and safe and happy and fulfilled. But the truth the psalm is trying to get us to see when the comparison is made is that none of those things will do any of that. They can't do any of that. That no person, that no passion, that no practice that we might turn to can actually take the place of God. Uh, Let's just do a a quick comparison now to, to prove the point, okay? Let me ask you these questions. Who of mankind can we say has the same character as the Almighty? None. Who of mankind can we say can do what he has done? None. Who of mankind can we say can sit side by side and look down and rule over it all? None. What we find is a humanity that isn't, even in its most formidable forms, isn't anything when it's compared to the greatness of God, who who is and who has and who sits. So is this comparison any good for us? Is it the sort of comparison that picks us up, that encourages us, that points us in the right direction? Or is it the the sort of comparison that leads us to wallowing, to self-pity, to doubt and to despair? Well, the psalmist thinks it's the sort of comparison that should fill us with joy, that should fill us with song and um, praise and adoration. I think if we push a little further this morning, we'll see that this is the sort of comparison that can bring us life and happiness and hope. Let's ask those questions again one more time. Who of man can we say has the same character as the Almighty? Is the answer really none? Or is the answer one?
Who of man can we say can do the things that God has done? Is the answer really none? Or is the answer again one? Who of man can sit side by side with God, looking down over everything, ruling and reigning above it all? The answer isn't none. The answer is one. The same Bible in which we find Psalm 33 is the same Bible that introduces us to the one who bridges that gap, who brings the greatness of God and puts flesh on it, who takes the lowliness of our humanity and elevates it. It's the one, the God-man, Jesus, God, plus flesh. Surely we should have known that the whole time as we were making our way through because he told us that he is the way, the truth and the life. That through him all things were made. That he descended from heaven for our sakes. That he died and now he has been exalted to the highest place so that at his name every knee should bow. He's the one who's being spoken about in the psalm. He's the one really that I think that we can read and trust in the words of verses 20 to 22 at the end. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May our faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Do you remember that comparison that I spoke about at the start, the good kind? where we reference something and we're able to correct our course and ahead in the right direction. I think Psalm 33, when we consider Jesus, is that sort of psalm. We look to the rest of humanity. We look to ourselves and to each other and we put so much pressure on those things, so much stock in those things, to be the things that make us happy, to be the things that keep us safe, to be the things that give us hope, and they simply cannot bear the weight. You and I, we're not up to much. The people that we put all of our hopes and dreams on, they're not up to much. Our, our practices, our passions, they will ultimately fail. But here is the good news of Psalm 33, that that great God who is and has and sits, he has taken on flesh. He has entered in and he gives us reason for hope. And so as we finish now, having made that comparison, having seen how wonderful God is and having considered quickly how comparatively nothing humanity is, I want to encourage you, along with the psalmist, I want to encourage you to put your hope, to put your trust, to lay your life in the hands of the right one, the right man who is God, to look to, to turn to, to see Jesus, and to recognise all that that has spoken to us this morning about God, recognise that that is true to us in Christ, and that is that is reason enough to listen to the command, to rejoice, to shout for joy, to sing praises, to worship, to adore and to put our hope, to place our trust in him, our safety and our security. Now for some of us that just means 
reminding ourselves, recognising that we go through life and the God that we know is there, the God that we know who has come, we, we go through life and we ignore him and we forget him and we drift away. Psalm 33 to us is a call, a reminder back, to get back on track. Perhaps for you though, you've never considered that God. You've never contemplated that God. You've never come to that God before in Jesus. Well, let Psalm 33 and this morning be an invitation to you to stop hoping in yourself, to stop hoping in others, which ultimately are utterly useless, and to put your hope in the one who is above and beyond and totally and utterly incomparable. When you do, there is hope. There is shelter and security. There is life and there is joy because he genuinely is that good.